And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. The ability of CO2 to do the heavy work of creating a climate catastrophe is almost nil at this point. The price of oil has been artificially elevated to the point of insanity. That's not how you power a modern industrial system. The ultimate goal of this renewable energy you know, plan is to reach the exact same point that we're at now. You know who's tried that? Germany. Seven straight days of no wind for Germany. Uh, their factories are shutting down. They really do act like weather didn't happen prior to like 1910. Today is Friday. It is Friday, and welcome to our special Blade Runner edition of Climate Change Roundtable number 66. That clip that you just saw from Blade Runner is what it's been like in New York for the past couple of days. And of course, the climate alarmists are going nuts. And here to talk about that, we have our usual folks. We have Dr. Sterling Burnett and Linnea Lucan. And, you know, guys, what do you think about this? Are these guys just off the rails this week? It's been really fun <laughs> seeing what everyone has to say about this stuff. You know, it's dramatic. And something like this hits the, um, you know, one of the, or maybe the biggest city in the United States. You're going to have, uh, and probably the biggest kind of climate alarmist concentration in the United States outside of California. Um, you're going to have a lot of climate alarmist claims when it comes to wildfires that, you know, if if we didn't have this kind of perfect storm of conditions, we would not be having right now. Yeah, yeah. you know, in New York and, and Washington, D.C. happens to be where the mainstream media, the major media outlets are. So they take a lot of notice of it. They're getting a taste of what many in the West get every year and have historically gotten. My dog's objecting, as you can see. Um, and... Like you say, it's wind currents. Wildfires aren't unnatural in Canada, and it's wind currents. They happen to be blowing towards the northeast, and so it's the end of the world as far as they're concerned. And of course, it's all caused by climate change. Yeah. Well, apparently the whole issue is causing dogs to bark. <laughs> I hear barking in the background. Anyway, um, so we've got an interesting reaction from the ever dependably alarmist AOC. She's basically flipping out, blaming climate change on wildfires. And in a story that we have in the New York Post, she is just going nuts on the issue because, you know, it's the apocalypse now right here in her backyard. Can we press the play button on that? There we go. Just like, just looks just like a film Blade Runner, does it not? Indeed. Anyway, what she's doing is basically saying that wildfires are a result of climate change, and this apocalypse being in New York is a result of climate change. Of course, there's no apocalypse to anybody who's lived in the western United States. We see this kind of situation virtually every year with wildfires somewhere. But um, she uh, basically tweeted that, you know, it's climate crisis. And what are we going to do without that? I mean, she is reactionary. Uh, she's also linking the fires to the heat in Puerto Rico, where they're having a uh, uh, heat index numbers as high as 125. Well, it's in the tropics. It's going to be hot. So what's the big deal? It just seems to me like these folks will grab any opportunity to go after and link climate change to virtually anything that's different or, or, or odd in weather. Thoughts? Well, it's not. The truth is, the wind winds blow, and this wind current isn't unique. It's not odd. The wildfires themselves aren't odd. Uh, Canada has wildfires every year, and in fact, their wildfire season starts earlier than here in the U.S. This is their peak wildfire wildfire season. Now, last year, 
because of uh, abundant rainfall for a couple of years in a row, uh, they didn't have much wildfire. Uh, a very, very small amount of acreage burned. But this year, uh, they're having more wildfires. You know, you build up fuel. Wildfires take three things. Uh, fuel, the right weather conditions, and um, an ignition source. And this year, uh, lightning storms sparked fires. Some, some arson has sparked a few of the fires. Uh, they've got abundant fuel because of some good years of rain. And <laughs> I guess the other contributing factor is really, really poor management. I, I wanted to use another word, but really, really poor management of their forest. Uh, I've seen evidence that whereas we're burning, you know, control burns, um, thousands over the past decade, they've lit like a hundred and their forests are much larger than ours. Yeah, you make good points. Those things are all things that happen every year. I mean, control burns, lightning happens. Uh, and of course we've got arson. Uh, there's been a, a lot of conspiracy theory going around saying that this stuff is related to arson or geoengineering. So far, everything I've looked at I can't find any evidence of either of those things. And I think it's just wild speculation, just as bad as the climate alarmist. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, I think I have seen some uh, indications that at least some, now these fires broke out in a couple different places. Uh, a lot of it was due to lightning strikes, but there were, I saw a report and I could have seen a report that was not the case but I saw that some of the fire marshals in Canada were reporting that several of the fires were caused by, or appeared to be caused by someone lighting them. Um, but that doesn't mean that the whole thing is caused by that. And it doesn't mean that, you know, New York is getting swallowed in smoke because there's a conspiracy involved. Um, you know, this stuff happens all the time. I think the majority of fires on the planet, like the whole world are usually caused by humans setting them, whether on accident or on purpose. Um, so this is just a really unfortunate combination of events, but every extreme natural disaster is an unfortunate combination of different factors coming together and, uh, kind of for lack of a better term, dunking on whoever it happens to occur over. Uh, yeah. so Look, you have prevailing winds and normally they don't blow the way they're blowing right now, but they have a high, uh, either a high or a low pressure system that's settled in. So it's keeping the smoke there. Um, but when they have normally have fires every year, uh, it doesn't typically blow that way. Mexico and often West Texas has fires. Um, unless the winds are blowing right, we don't see the smoke in Dallas. But when they do, we can be hundreds or thousands of miles from um, the fires and still get pretty heavy smoke. And, you know, that's what's happening in New York now. And uh, as Anthony wrote in a piece that he wrote for Climate Realism, uh, I believe it, uh, maybe it ran today. Uh, no, uh, but but a guest post and some, some stuff that he's written point out, look, we've had, uh, <laughs> New York has had this, the New England has had this happen before, right? It's the press release we put out yesterday that Anthony spoke. Yeah, so, you know, Senator Schumer had to jump in and talk about the same thing that AOC did because, you know, He's calling an unprecedented event and warns of climate change impact. Well, gosh, that's just terrible, isn't it? Uh, of course, Senator Schumer hasn't been very good at being right about anything when it comes to climate. He's just as reactionary and just as wrong as AOC in most cases. And so we've got these politicians that are making these pronouncements. The lapdog media laps it up, repeats it makes it headlines, and the people that are out there that don't have the wherewithal to know any better look at it as fact. And that is the, that is the vicious cycle that we have in media today. Uh, it's just a constant drumbeat of non-factual claims from activists and politicians that get turned into headlines anytime there's any kind of an event in the weather uh, that's or fires or whatever that's out of the ordinary. And we end up having to debunk these things constantly. And of course, um, nobody listens in the mainstream media. They're not interested in fact. They're only interested in pushing the agenda. Sterling, you talk about this a lot. You talk about how the media is corrupt in this regard. What, what are your thoughts on them repeating this stuff? Well, I mean, look, we, we, Ideally, we look to journalists to be the fourth estate. They're supposed to be a check on power. 
and they're supposed to be seeking truth and speaking truth to power. And instead, they have uh, gotten into bed with power, um, unless power, of course, is uh, not promoting the causes that they support. And then, of course, they attack it. Uh, but most of the time, uh, it's government wants to expand and the media is fostering it. Government blames something on uh, on evil humans and the media just it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't exercise this normal journalistic uh, investigative journalism, right? Look at facts. That's what they should be doing. They should have, they, they claim to have fact checkers. As far as I can tell, they never check any facts. Someone says, Schumer says, unprecedented. We know for a fact it's not unprecedented. It's happened before. Why don't they call him out on that? Why don't they say, Schumer, we fact-checked. This gets three Pinocchios. Schumer's wrong. It has happened before. Right, uh, indeed. And and this, this Wikipedia page that we have up here talks about what happened in uh, 1890, or pardon me, 1780. 1780, on May 19th, all of New England was darkened. There was dark skies. People had to light candles to see. And it was blamed on later after uh, archaeologists went through and trying to figure it all out, a bunch of wildfire that happened in Canada in the Algonquin, what is now the Algonquin National Forest. And so this blacked out the skies, just like what happened in New York this week. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is before the Industrial Revolution or climate change with even a, a glimmer in the eye of science. And yet, you know, today it has to be climate change. It can't be anything else. That's the problem we've got. That these people open their mouths before they even think about researching history. And it's not just that. There, there's other history involved. Um, in 1825, there was something called the Great Miramichi Fire, uh, which uh, is the third largest forest fire ever recorded in North America. And, you know, it was in New Brunswick, again, Canada. You know, it, there's always a joke about Canada invading the United States. Well, here we go. Canada's invading us with smoke. That's the big invasion that we're getting. Maybe it's the cover for their military coming in, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's orange <laughs> and, smoke and, and, and they're popping. And so not only do they not check the facts about history, but they don't check any facts about Canadian forests. Or, you know, when they talk about Western forest and forest fires, Western forest, they don't look at not just what have wildfires done in the past, what in the past hundred years has been the history of wildfire trends. They don't they don't check that. And they don't check about the causes of wildfires, by which I mean, they don't look at fuel, fuel load. They don't look at temporary weather conditions, not because there are no weather trends that would foster wildfires. We're actually getting more rain more moisture. We're having fewer droughts. Um, but one of the things that has really changed since uh, Ronald Reagan was president is we've stopped thinning forest as heavily as we used to. They used to log 12 billion board feet from, Nash from U.S. National Forest annually. We're down to less than 2 billion today. They've ripped out uh, forest roads. So when wildfires start, you can't get to them as readily. Now, Canada has never been as developed as us in their forests. They've got more forests. But still, uh, if you don't manage your forest, as the natives did, by the way, with fire, um, if you consider them pristine temples to be untouched, you get overgrowth, you get too much brush, you get more timber. When uh, parasites do strike and kill trees, it's easier for them to go from tree to tree when they're packed in like a... Uh, toothpicks as opposed to more spread out as they were historically when the Indians managed land with fire. And, uh, and this is the result. Uh, you know, uh, we've got uh, uh, the ability to answer questions at the end of the show. So if you folks have questions about wildfire, climate, crazy of politicians like AOC or uh, the price of eggs in China, I don't care. Put those questions up there and we'll answer them at the end of the show. Uh, okay, so I want to go to our Climate at a Glance article on U.S. wildfires. Now, Climate at a Glance is a project of the Heartland Institute, and I curate this website. And uh, Sterling uh, provides a lot of input and review to these things. And we try to com 
to basically get all the facts put down in one place about these issues. Now, we've talked about wildfire, and what I want to do is scroll down just a little bit on this page and show the number of acres of wildfire that's been burned in the United States right here, right here, this graphic. Now, this is an interesting graphic for two reasons. Number one, it's using data that shows all the way back into the 1920s. Now, you may recall that the U.S. Forest Service and the fire suppression that was part of their mission didn't really happen until around the 30s or so, and then it really picked up after that. And so we saw fire suppression uh, bring the number of wildfires way down. Without fire suppression, those wildfires would be much higher because the fire suppression out there, where they remember they have lookouts on mountaintops looking for lightning strikes and so forth, and they would send people out proactively to get those things out before they turned into major blazes. So what well, happened? The whole Smokey the Bear program, you know, only you can prevent forest fires. Report them if you see them. And, and if you saw them, they got right on it and put them out. Right. That was a huge television campaign that went on in the 60s. They had that all over the place. I remember seeing those public service announcements, watching Bonanza in my, in my parents' TV room on Sunday night that they would talk about the, the Forest Service and forest fires on Smokey the Bear. So yeah. what happens? They go through this suppression, right? And then what happens after that? Well, the environmentalists get involved. And around 1980 or so, the environmentalists start going, well, you can't you can't touch the forest. They're, they're sacred, you know? You can't do anything. Well, here's what happened. Let's scroll down a little bit further. Just last year, the year before, the National Interagency Fire Center, who is the curator of all the data about acreage burn in the United States, caved to the environmentalists and decided, we're gonna get rid of all the data prior to 1983. They completely disappeared it from their website. Their explanation was, oh, well, that old data wasn't really bad. It wasn't really good. It was not representative. It wasn't measured right, blah, 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 blah. Never mind the fact that dozens, if not hundreds, of scientific studies were using that very same data that they disappeared. And of course, I caught them in the act. And so here's what it looks like. If you look at all the data, you see a downward trend in fires. If you look at only the data from 1983 forward, it shows an upward trend in fires. They pick, this in fact, is a blatant lie by omission. And in fact, they picked the lowest point, right? Where did they exactly. start? They picked the exactly. very lowest point. And then, the, and so if you pick the lowest point, naturally anything above it looks like it's an right. increase. And so idiots like AOC, see this second graph, the one that shows the trend upward since 1983. And of course, in their micro brains, oh, it's climate change. But they don't know the backstory. They don't know that they've been lied to as well. And that's the big thing that goes on with these in this climate circle. It just becomes a mutual uh, admiration society where everybody keeps piling on everybody else and you end up with lies like this being presented to the public. How dare you? You know, the reason they say that, that they withdrew it is that the data wasn't consistent with our current data. The data was from different sources. And, and, and I'm certain that that's true, uh, but the data is what the data is. They, they pretend like people double counted. No, there's no evidence that people didn't know when an area burned and, uh, and multiple reports got counted multiple times for the same area. That's unbelievable. In the end, it, it came down to it was inconvenient to, to the narrative. And so they removed the past data. And then they said it was not good data. Uh, what's interesting is if they took the same approach, honestly, if they took the same approach to uh, paleoclimate data, right, we would know nothing about the history of the Earth. Oh, well, the data's not, uh, the data for past temperatures isn't calculated the same as it's calculated today. Well, that's true. So do we not believe the data that we have about past temperatures from ice core data? <laughs> uh if so, then we haven't had much warming because, gosh, the warming started uh, uh, after the 1940s. But if it didn't count until we were modern, you know, we used modern methods uh, that were consistent across time, data for hurricanes, data for tornadoes, data for wildfires, data for temperatures, none of it counts because it's not done the way it's done today. Yeah, exactly right, Sterling. You know, and there was one other issue that happened in the middle of all this. So they disappeared the data prior to 1983. 
And there's an upward trend in that fire data now showing more wildfires. But there's another backstory to this that most people don't realize, and that is the spotted owl. Yes, in the Western United States in the 1980s, they shut down logging because the spotted owl, spotted owl habitat was being endangered. Well, I put the, the trends together, where I put the timeline together. In 1990, the spotted owl was listed in, as endangered. And then you see the, the, uh, in red, federal, timbers acres, federal timber acres burned in millions of, of square miles uh, in the red versus the amount harvested in blue. Look what happens. The amount harvested goes down, the amount burned goes up on a steady trend. Why? Because they can't manage the forest anymore. You know, a few years ago when President Trump visited Paradise, California, that had been burned to the ground by the incompetence and negligence of PG&E, he said, you guys need to rake the forest. And the media went batshit over that. They went absolutely berserk, saying he's an idiot, he's a moron, he, whatever, you know, the usual things. He was right. You do need to rake the forest. You do need to manage the forest floor. You yeah. need to keep the the fire situation under control so that the underbrush doesn't corrupt and you have these monster fires. Fires are a natural part of the ecosystem in forests. Certain types of pine trees cannot reproduce uh, unless their pine cones get opened up by the heat of fire so that the seeds can fall on the ground. Fire is natural, but when you don't let it happen, like when you had fire suppression for several years from the Forest Service, and then you go to, to no suppression at all, you end up with a, a, whole, a real mess. Not, not just suppression, though. I mean, remember, 1990, the same time we had the first George Bush as president, and he changed the management directive of the Forest Service. The Forest Service is in the Department of Agriculture. There's a reason for that. Trees are natural resources that can be harvested over time and replenished, right? They're a renewable resource. Exactly. One of the ultimate renewable resources. And the forests were managed to produce timber in part. Under Bush, that changed. It was to protect ecosystems. We're going to have a whole of, of ecosystem management approach, which meant we stopped logging. We protected the spotted owl. I would I would wager the spotted owl actually hasn't been that protected, Uh when it's when its entire habitat is being burnt to the ground uh, because we are no longer either logging or setting, uh, you know, managed burns, right, to, to get the underbrush. And um, taking it a little different uh, direction, you have to ask yourself, how are these forest fires playing out as far as CO2 uh, contributions to the atmosphere? Because uh, we're told we're told trees are carbon sinks, and they are. Um, so, is letting our forest burn really a good idea from the perspective of if you're really worried about climate change? Uh, is letting forest burn good for carbon dioxide emissions? Uh, are are they substantial? Turns out the answer is yes. Yeah, uh, the carbon dioxide. Uh, there was a story which I don't have access to at the moment. Came out a few days ago that talked about the wildfires in California over the last few years have basically wiped out all the emissions gains that they've made in California with electric cars and shutting off gas stoves and all this other stuff that they're doing. And, well, there was one uh, last night just on uh, News Nation. Uh, that, yeah, that was let's talk up. about that. Uh, Sterling, you saw this video. Why don't you introduce it? Well, like I said, I was watching News Nation, and he had he had a couple of segments on the wildfires. Uh, one of them I've been unable to find that was really interesting because it talked about uh, Canada's burns versus the U.S. managed burns. Hundreds in Canada over 20 years, thousands in the U.S. Uh, I wonder why Canada's burning. Uh, but the second segment, uh, he part of it he talked about the amount of CO2 produced by these wildfires and compared it to other things that produce CO2. And he says, maybe we should be managing the impacts of climate change because we really can't control CO2 emissions. But if you look deeper into the numbers, uh, burning boreal forests in North America and Eurasia in 2021 released 1.76 billion tons of carbon dioxide. Pardon me. Uh, that's nearly twice as much as global aviation that year, four times as much as New York State's annual emissions, three times as much as the Inflation Reduction Act projected to reduce emissions in 2030. 
I'm wondering if this is not proof when you look at this and forest fires are gonna happen, that there's really nothing we can do as, as humans to stop this trend. Therefore, we should start spending this money on limiting the impacts of forest fires and hurricanes and everything else. Yeah, I think, you know, that's- Well, you know, the science, and, and I'm rooted in science. You can stop it right, yeah. That, you know, and that's the point, right? Forest fires are erupting. I hear, uh, I think it's, uh, what, Kilauea uh, on Mauna Loa? I'm not sure. One of the volcanoes after a few months off has started um, spewing again. Um, nature puts this stuff out all the time. If you don't manage it right, nature puts out a lot more than would it otherwise would when these fires occur. Um, and it swamps, as that, that video showed. One, one fire season, 2021, in Boreal Forest. So that's just the forest here. That's not even forest over in Europe. That's not the forest over in Africa. It's just the northern Boreal Forest. Uh, it's not the Amazon. None of that. Uh, it swamps aviation emissions, it swamps New York's emissions, uh, and and <laughs> the, all those CO2 gains that we're getting way out in 2030 from the Inflation Reduction Act, three times that in one year. And it happens, and these things happen every year. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's crazy. You know, on one hand, it, it's, it's, we've got the environmentalists that are suppressing the forest and they don't want it to be managed. So we can't do any fire suppression. We can't do any controlled burn. We can't do anything. We can't touch it. And then we have a lightning strike or we have an arsonist and things go out of control really quick. And we get these massive wildfires, which then they have climate alarmists blame on climate change instead of themselves. And then we end up with more emissions. I mean, these environmentalists and, and climate activists are doing far more harm than they are good with their activism. All right, I want to show you another graphic here. This is a temperature graph for the United States since 2005. Now, we have this also on our website, Climate at a Glance. But this is the average temperature anomaly from the U.S. Climate Reference Network. The U.S. Climate Reference Network is a state-of-the-art, properly cited network that was started up in 2005. And it produces the best surface temperature data available. It's only in the United States, unfortunately. It's not global. But the point here is, is look at the beginning of the graph back in 2005 and look at now, back in, you know, the present. They're really, it's very close. It's very little difference, if any. And, and so, yes, there's a bit of warming going on, but it's not catastrophic like these folks claim. They can't really link it to, well, they can, they, they say anything. But if you look at data, you can't really link the two. Well, and let's not forget that, you know, a lot of these media outlets are actually, you know, they're getting specific funding to attribute stuff to climate change. Uh, and Sterling and I have written on that quite a bit as well. Um, you know, there's there's the whole attribution network where they just they try to. They, they send out like little blurbs to the media companies saying like, hey, we're going to attribute this to climate change. You can write on this for this. And they'll go ahead and do it. And then later they'll back it up with some attribution study. And then they'll have another media blitz about the attribution study. I don't know if there's already one out for these wildfires. Um, I assume that there will be an attribution study coming out for them. And it'll say, you know, the fires were X percent more severe because mm -hmm. climate change. Because uh, that's usually the kind of claim that they make. Totally, you can't check something like that. They call, like, <laughs> yeah, they call them rapid attribution studies because they get them out yeah. before any data is checked, right? They run right, a computer exactly. model, the model says, oh, well, it, it would have been here if it hadn't been for climate change. And it's like, oh, that's evidence. And yeah, so to, be prepared to, to for those said, ones, guys. To what you said, though, that's critical. Uh, it's not just that they send the media the blurbs and the media runs it. Uh, last year, five foundations gave millions of dollars to the AP to expand specifically to expand its climate change coverage. And they hired specific reporters to report on nothing but climate change. And gosh, uh, Al Gore likes to say when your uh, when your funding comes from doing a certain thing, you're loath to deny that that certain thing is the problem. Well, 
something like that. And uh, there it is. It's like, look, if the foundations are giving the AP money to report on climate change, they're going to report on a lot of climate change. And everything is going to be climate change because if there's a slow week, uh, they're not earning their bucks from these foundations. So they specifically hired people, dozens of reporters in countries around the world. So they have a steady stream of stories coming in all the time. Yep. And, you know, on those slow weeks, that's when you get the really funny stories. <laughs> the one where it's like, you know, moose are causing climate change because they're pulling up weeds at the bottom of ponds and it's releasing methane. So we have to do something about that, that kind of thing. Uh, that's when the really good ones get out there. Those are the most, they're the most difficult to refute because there's just no data <laughs> anywhere on it. Uh, it's well, unfalsifiable. They can make up any claim they want. Yeah. <laughs> climate change contributes to alcoholism at the same time as it's causing a decline in rye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the strangest ironies of all of this, you know, you know, on one hand, they're saying we can't mess with the forest. They're, they're sacred, you know, and we've got to protect the forest. And then the forests burn. And then the forest produce forest fires that are raging smoke all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. And then the smoke is covering major metropolitan areas like New York and Washington, and they go berserk over that. But guess what? There's also a really hard data effect. It's affecting the solar energy production in the Northeast. It's plunged by 50% because there's so much smoke in the air. What irony. Gosh. But, and you this know, is renewable again, energy is the future, uh, right? You know, That's Anthony, beautiful. and this is something that we have talked about over and over again, especially with the hurricane issue. Going all right. electric is going to compromise our ability to handle natural disasters. It's not going Absolutely to stop right. them from happening. I don't, I don't think that even, you know, if you were to lock Michael Mann in a cage and say, you know, you have to answer this question, will reducing human emissions to zero stop hurricanes from happening? I don't think he could say yes. I, you know, there's just, that would be absurd. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone believes that. So how on earth is making our electricity systems more weather dependent going to help us when the weather is supposed to be getting worse due to climate change? Yeah, I mean, th this is just one example. The same thing happened in California during the wildfires. It also happens during dust storms. It also happens during snowstorms. You rely on solar, solar panels have to be clean. They, the, 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 the dirtier they are, the, the thicker the stuff on top of them, the less power they're producing. And if you're shutting down those plants that are backing up solar, right, now they're backing it up uh, and you're shutting them down, then you just don't have power. So your hospitals, it's, it's, it's threatening human lives, right? Inconsistent power is a hazard to human lives. And that's why um, hospitals and uh, most emergency centers, uh, I suppose most fire and police departments, they have backup generators and those aren't solar backup generators. They're diesel. Uh, fossil fuels work. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. As Linnea says that we are making at a time when they say extreme weather is going to be worse because of climate change, we're making our, uh, electric power grid more dependent on, uh, reliable weather. You know, let's, let's make sure Let's sacrifice a few virgins to the gods uh, to keep the weather being nice so our power system runs, because that's what we're coming to. You know, we're going to start seeing alerts in California, I predict, where we'll have, you know, today is an inclement weather day. Please be sure to turn off all of your power. <laughs> and, and, you know, it happens during heat waves, too. A few years ago in California, we had a massive heat wave. The solar power was straining because when it gets too hot, they don't get as efficient. But also, more importantly, uh, the wind power shut off because when we have the stagnant air, which is a characteristic of heat waves, uh, the wind power just dropped precipitously. And it happened in conjunction with one another. The wind power stopped in the late afternoon. And at the same time, solar power is getting less efficient due to heat and the fact that the sun's going down. So the grid in California came within 10 minutes of crashing due to this nonsense. Yeah, here in Texas, you know, we, we actually lead the nation in wind. Uh, something to be so proud of. Uh, we lead the nation in wind. And when does wind drop off in Texas? During the summer. When is power demand highest in Texas? Well, typically during the summer. Uh, 
so we, we, we've just set our system up for failure. We had a system designed by engineers and it's now being redesigned by politicians who aren't engineers uh, based on virtue signaling. We want to be greener right. than thou. Right. Yep. AOC and her green agenda. And who the question is, have power from the question I have is this, when it all collapses, when it all collapses, when blackouts become the norm in California, not just during the summer, but, uh, you know, year round, when uh, New York City finds itself constantly short of power, will they then see the light or will their masters, uh, the elites, tell them, no, it was always this, you know, they'll, they'll try and do some revisionist history. It was always this way. There's nothing we can do about it. There's just not a technology that can keep right. lights running. Either that or they'll blame it on racism. <laughs> well, they're kind of already doing that, right? They talk yeah. about, you know, the power outages and stuff that we have so often, um, you know, on the East Coast and throughout the country. And no one's saying like, oh, this is bad because, you know, this didn't used to happen, you know, 10 years ago at the frequency that it happens now, which is the truth. Yeah. Um but people have such short memories. They're so willing to just accept like, oh, well, you know, yeah, this is good. But they'll accept the idea that, you know, there's no snow anymore, even if they look out their window and there is <laughs> snow on the ground. So uh, it's I don't know. I think that I think a lot of the stuff with the smoke in New York is that people really want to be uh, the first to experience something. Well, there's kind of a psychology element of, you know, things are worse now than they have ever been. Every civilization in history has insisted yeah. that things are worse now than they have ever been before. And uh, it's obviously not the case <laughs> across the board. But um, I, I, I think that there's something to say that people are having a little bit of fun over there. Uh, with their little apocalyptic views outside their windows and stuff right now. And the media is ginning up genuine fear from what otherwise could have been, you know, just kind of an annoyance for the weekend. You know, maybe don't spend as much time outside if you don't want your voice to get all hoarse and stuff. Um, you know, they're trying to make it sound like it's a uh, very intense health threat. Um, and I think Steve Malloy has been pretty consistent about reporting on why that's not the case, yeah. that it's going to threaten people who don't have pre-existing, you know, lung issues. Um, you know, they're making all these scary statistics where they're saying like, it's as much as smoking six cigarettes to be outside all day in New York right now. Uh, yeah, Malloy, yeah. Malloy showed today. He said, look, according to, to what they claim, what the environmentalists have claimed, um, uh, Incidences of uh, hospitalization should have increased dramatically, like 88%, based on the uh, particulate matter in the air. Uh, yet the EPA shows none of that, that there aren't increases, that people aren't dying. Now, Now, the other reason it's getting so much play, of course, it is in the East Coast where all the major media outlets are based. And it gives them a chance to go outside and put on their mask, Oh, because they love those masks. Uh, they love doing save, that. You know, according to them, masks save lives. Well, this is just more proof. Masks save lives, and so they've gone outside in their mask, and they've done their brave reporting in the smoke. Uh, they they seem to think now that they're standing in smoke, they're almost like the guy that's standing in the middle of a hurricane reporting. Every time I see that every year, I think this guy's an idiot. But uh, these guys think they're just as brave by going out and standing in smoke. <sighs> uh, it's deadly out here, but I've got my mask on and. We'll, we'll trudge through. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to end the discussion on wildfires with this particular note from NASA. Researchers detect a drop in global fires. Now, they're doing this through satellite data. And if you scroll down a little bit, there's an animated graph right there. Watch this. This is really telling. This is global wildfire data for uh, since 2003. Look at that. Boom. It's going down. Where's the climate change link? There isn't any. It's I've seen data simple. from Canada that shows the same thing. It's not just exactly. global, it's regional. Canada itself has had a dramatic drop in wildfires. Who says so? The Canada's Forest Service. Right. <laughs> they, their this, data shows this, it. And they, and they attribute, in a report, they attribute it to increased CO2 emissions, which is making, uh, which is increased moisture and which is stored more 
moisture in the soil because trees use uh, moisture more efficiently. They lose less to transpiration. That has been what they blame. Uh, ooh, a terrible consequence of, of climate change is that forest, fewer forests are burning in Canada. Yeah. So it boils really down to this. Who are you going to believe? A bartender like AOC turned politician? Or are you going to believe <laughs> data? That you're going to believe the data that says there's no climate crisis. Well, me, I'm going to believe data that says there's no climate crisis every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Who follows the science? The the alarmist or us? Uh, they 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 put up uh, you know AOC or Greta. Uh, who I think I saw was getting some kind of degree uh, granted to her. Um, and uh, or someone like, uh, you know, uh, Will Happer, Princeton or, uh, um, you know, any of the other scientists that we work with, Roy Spencer or many of the scientists that we work with. Right. Well, I think you we know, have but... a bunch of if we don't have anything else to um, show, we might have a couple other stories to show, but we have a whole lot of questions today. Great. So I want to talk about what's coming up with COP28. Yes, it's mm -hmm. another climate conference, conference of parties, they call it. And, you know, all the big wigs are going to fly in their private jets from all over the world to tell us how we need to reduce our carbon emissions, blah, 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 blah. We've heard it all before. 28 of these and not one damn thing has changed. Carbon dioxide is still on its way up in the atmosphere. There's no crisis, yet everyone says it is a crisis, and we're going to tell you from our conference we flew to in our private jet. And oh, now this... they're talking about eliminating fossil fuels from the discussion at all because, my gosh, they're evil, right? Linnea, you're our fossil fuel expert. What do you think about this? Well, it's not going to be on the agendas because they've been trying to push this forever. They're still going to try to push it, um, but they're starting to get some pushback because the you know chickens are coming home to roost on this one. Mm -hmm. uh, well, also they're starting to see the immediate impacts. They've been saying for years that uh, that switching off of fossil fuels is the economic option, but now that they have started to get a little bit of um, you know, success in that area, not success the way that we would say that, it, that they're meeting any kind of standard of success, but uh, just the fact that they're adding more renewables to the grid uh, and it's starting to negatively impact uh, electricity performance. Well, so that's not the only reason. Fires cover back. the solar panels with smoke? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cop, cop 20, the, the upcoming COP, that's not the only reason why their uh, fossil fuels are off the agenda. You got to look at where it's being held, right? They granted it to Dubai, an oil kingdom, uh, who oh, yeah, gets to set that. the who gets to set the agenda. So that's like, uh, I mean, so Dubai hosts COP twenty is it eight now, and uh, the Saudis take over the PGA in the same week. Uh, th th that's a big story. And so it's like, gosh, is it any wonder they're not going to talk about oil and bashing oil? Uh, and they could, you know, look, the people that run the UN IPCC, they could say, you know what, this is this is uh, hypocritical. We, we know that fossil fuels have got to end. That's what the head of the IPCC said. We know it's got to end. Uh, so we're going to yank Dubai's sponsorship. We'll put it off a year. We did it during the during the pandemic. We'll put it off a year and 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 put it somewhere more suitable where the people are in line with our views and cancel all those five stars. You know, nobody is saying we're not going to Dubai in, in protest. The thousands of people will show up to Dubai, the five-star hotels and the four-star meals, the Michelin restaurants. None of them are saying, Oh, I just can't be in Dubai, the oil kingdom talking about climate change when we can't even talk about oil. None of them are taking that principled stand. So, I'd go to Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, COP28 is coming up soon. And of course, they're going to have the usual pronouncements. The, the whole thing is predictable. And it goes like this. We're meeting because the earth is in crisis. And we're going to come up with solutions. And then they're going to, you know, fidget around amongst themselves and tell the world that, oh, things are not going well. You know, we're on a crisis mode. We can't get people to agree. Then at the last minute, they're going to come up with some pointless agreement, you know, like 
Botswana is going to reduce their emissions by 10.6% or something useless like that, right? And then they're going to say, the world is saved. We did it. Yay. It, it, that is the predictable pattern of 28 of these things, and still nothing has changed. Politicians and bureaucrats don't accomplish anything except making noise and paper and laws. That's it. Oh, All and, right. And, and emitting and putting out a lot of emissions, right? Yeah. The trans transportation and the, the accommodations, those aren't emission free, folks. Yep. Al Gore and John Kerry are the most emissive people out there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So let's go to some questions. We've had a lot of questions that have been stacked up during this conversation. Here's the first one. I keep hearing news of boiling record hot ocean temperatures, especially in the North Atlantic. Are these data sets legitimate or are they like the surface data sets? Well, yes and no. Uh, it, it's, the, the ocean temperatures are an even more complex problem. Um, ocean temperatures used to be measured by throwing a bucket, uh, a cloth bucket, over the side of the ship and then pulling up a bucket of water in this cloth bucket. And then you put the mercury thermometer in it. You wait for it to settle and you take a reading. That's how it had been done since like 18 whatever, right? Then when technology came around in the mid 30s and 40s, they started switching it to ship water intakes you know, going into the boiler system and so forth, they put a thermometer on the water intake. The problem with that is there was no quality control with it. In some cases, the water intake might be downstream from an outlet somewhere further up in the ship that's putting out hot water or wastewater or whatever, or the toilets or who knows. And so the, the there was this badly measured data with no quality control on ships. There was no central entity that said, when you're measuring temperatures on ships of the ocean, it has to be done this way. That fell apart. And so now we've got this hodgepodge of data uh, for the oceans. And now and we've got better data now. We've got uh, buoys out there and so forth that are operated correctly, I might say. Um, but, you know, it's just a mishmash, much like the surface temperature record. Same kind of problems. I, I'd like to add, join in on that. So there are more than 2,000 buoys across the ocean. It's still, it's still woefully undercovered. But there are 2,000 buoys that are, that are recording these temperatures right. And they weren't showing the warming that climate alarmists expected. And so in 2015, just a few months before the Paris Climate Treaty, uh, the Paris Climate Conference, uh, people from NOAA rushed into publication uh, new startling evidence that the oceans were warming more than... Uh, that there was no hiatus and the oceans were warming faster than we expected. And how did they get to that? Well, they added in bad data with good data. They said, well, the, we know that the buoys don't give sufficient coverage. So we're going to add in uh, data from ocean, uh, from ship intake, uh, water intake valves. Okay. For ships are steel. They radiate heat. Second, the ocean intake valves, are next to the engine compartments, by the way. Uh, I suspect uh, ocean-going ships, engines, generate a lot of heat. Um, and, and they blended them in. And even the guy who ran data con quality control at NOAA said they shouldn't have published this paper. They shouldn't have rushed it. They The dog ate their data when they went back to check the quality of the data. That They, they they'd somehow had lost it because they didn't do what uh, NOAA required as far as storing data. Um, but that's, that's where you're getting this warming. It's, it's, it's an artifact of adding ships back in as opposed to just buoys in part. In addition, and this is one that we're going to hear a lot about. Yeah. El Nino's you know, coming. Uh, El Nino's I remember here. when that came out, Sterling, and I yeah. published an article on What's Up With That about this. And I called out the two main people, uh, Carl Peterson, who was the director of the National Climatic Data Center, uh, not Carl Peterson, the doctor, uh, Dr. Carl and Peterson, who was the assistant, called out these two guys on this. And their response was basically, um, well, I can't say it, but um, their response was, uh, we're going to do whatever we damn well please, and you don't have any right to talk about it. And then both of these guys retired within about two months after this paper came out. This was just their last hurrah to show there's warming. We know it. It's real, even though we have to make up you know, crappy data and mix it with good data to show it. And, and, and they, you know, on. well, they had the effect they wanted, right? 
They got it out yeah. before the climate conference and we got a big treaty based on in part on that. And then the guy who did the data quality control, who won awards for his work, uh, blasted him. But by then it was too late. And and um, so, you know, that's that's how it works. You you get the effect you want, even if you're wrong. It's too late. Now, uh, the other factor that we're going to hear a lot about, uh, El Nino has finally been declared and ocean temperatures are going to warm. And we have already been warned they will go above 1.5 degrees because of El Nino. Now, I suspect during the summer when uh, El Nino takes full effect, they'll stop talking about El Nino and they'll start talking about climate change causing 1.5 degrees. But I was, you know, I've been told since 2015 that 1.5 degrees is the tipping point, that we have to avoid 1.5 degrees or all manner of disaster. So what's going to happen uh, when disasters don't occur? And we have 1.5 degrees or are, will they say, oh, yeah, we were wrong. It's really two degrees. Uh, you know, how, the what's their response going to be? Because we're going to reach 1.5 if we, you know, Anthony, you've written already that we've already surpassed it. But it's certainly going to be even by their standards surpassed this year and the world will not end. And uh, and it won't be because of climate change. It'll be because of El Nino. And somehow, I, I don't see how they're going to fiddle with, well, El Nino's 1.5 degrees doesn't really matter. It's only when climate change does it that it matters. Well, yeah. Sterling, and this is something that we've seen as well. They started talking about this earlier last year when they started to realize that La Nina was going to end. El Nino was coming. And we were going to hit that temperature. They, that's when they started backing off of the tipping points phrasing. Remember when we covered yeah. that? Yeah. They started saying, well... You know, a tipping point isn't like a runaway ca cascading impacts kind of a thing. It's just kind of a broad, we don't want to get to this point kind of range of problems. Uh, and so that that was, I don't know, they're already kind of hedging their bets on that one. They have been for a little while. But I, wanna, I want to say before we answer any other questions, we have three super chats. And I wanted to say thank you guys so much. Um, Christine, you've given us a couple of super chats before. Um, and we love that you are watching us and that you're here pretty much every week. Uh, Rocks and Oil is always here as well. So thank you very much. And Alan Griffiths, I think that's two pounds. I, I'm not super familiar with uh, the European uh, currencies, but I believe that's the pounds sign. Um, keep up the good work, guys. My weekend starts with you, he says. So thank you guys yeah. very much. And, and, you know, compared to the millions we supposedly get from big oil, we're out for 5 and $10 here, right? <laughs> okay, next question. Hey, Exxon should come in and give us a super chat. I'm sure they would love to do that. Yeah. Well, remember, the 700 Club started with 700 donors, $10 a piece, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, so the next question from Alan Griffiths. The kids who take part in the Just Stop Oil protest have been lied to by adults for their entire lives. If you believe the world is going to end soon, why wouldn't you protest? Linnea, you're our resident um, younger person. What do you think? Yeah, well, it, you know, if you thought that, if you genuinely think that the use of fossil fuels, period, was going to cause the earth to become uninhabitable, which is a term that has been used a lot this year. I hadn't heard it so much before. We kind of, you know, make fun of them saying that they're implying that it's going to become uninhabitable. But this year I've been hearing them use that term is that we are literally not going to be able to survive as a species because of climate change, which is patently absurd. Um, but if you really believe that, then yeah, you'd be on the streets. I don't know if I would be gluing my hand to the sidewalk or to the road or whatever. <laughs> that seems a little yeah. counterproductive, but I'd certainly be, you know, pretty aggressively trying to educate people on it and stuff. But the problem is, is that they don't have the data on their side. So all they can do is throw soup at priceless works of art and, um, you know, try to control us from the top down using government power and money laundering, as far as I can tell. But the kids don't even have that lever, frankly. You know, protest is, is the one thing they can do. They don't control power and they have been lied to. And um, unless somehow they stumble upon our work or that of our allies uh, that of good scientists, if they, 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 if they take the time to do deep searches on the internet, 
um, they're responding to what they believe is the truth, right? I don't understand the gluing yourself to paintings or, or destroying priceless works of art. Uh, but, you know, they're out there slashing tires, right? Well, if you think SUVs are causing the death of the earth, I understand it. I disagree with it, but I understand it. Um, the problem is, like you say, they're wrong. But how do we get the message to them that they're wrong? And, of course, we're doing that with Climate at a Glance. We, we created Climate at a Glance for teachers and students. Uh, Linnea, you're doing it with your video series and with Energy at a Glance, trying to shed light. And I just hope we can reach a wider youth audience. So there's less despair and less, you know, climate-induced mental illness, right? I mean, that's one of the things. Right. All right. So next uh, question from Catherine Burke. But what would be a better method instead of peer review? Who would be qualified to critically look at the presented information? Oh, that's a tough one. You know, peer review is always held up as being perfection. You know, this is the perfection of science. Well, Bottom line is peer review isn't really all that great. Here's the problem. Peer review is basically you go out and you ask maybe a half a dozen people to review a paper that's just been published. The editor of a journal makes these uh, requests. And then people say, yeah, I'll review it. Okay. So you get qualified people from different uh, parts of your, of your um, you know, science area or math area, whatever it might be, medical area. And they review this, but they don't get paid to do this. They don't have any specific um, requirements that they have to adhere to. They basically read the paper and it's on a time available basis. And so what happens a lot of times is people will skim these papers because they're busy, just like everybody else. They're busy. They skim the paper and yeah, that looks right to me. A lot of the things he says make sense to me. A lot of the things written or that graph looks right to me. But very seldom do they go down and, and dig deep and recreate, you know, what's been experimented on or, or, you know, prophesized or whatever. They don't have the time or the resources. And in some cases, it's impossible. When it comes down to predictions on climate models, for example, associated with supercomputers, you don't have a supercomputer in your basement that you can run this stuff on and figure out if it's right or not. So where do we go? I don't know. That's a tough question. I, I well, will say this on WhatsApp with that. When we publish a paper or uh, a claim, it gets excoriated pretty quickly if it's wrong. And so we get crowd review as opposed to peer review. And I would say that the sum total of people on the Internet, even though there's a lot of dumb people on the Internet, there's a lot of smart people, too. And crowd review tends to sort out the good from the bad. The other problem we have with the peer review process is often the people reviewing it are friends of or colleagues of those who wrote it and they don't want to offend or it's, they already had that predisposition to believe what they found when it's alarming and to disbelieve uh, what they found when it's not alarming. So it makes it harder for an alarming one to get through. Um, and like you say, Anthony, often they just don't do the work. The, the, the answer, uh, it would slow the publication process dramatically of, of papers. But the answer is transparency. I think part of the answer is transparency of data and assumptions shared so people can test to the extent that these claims can be tested, can test the claims. Not all of them are based on computer models. So the question is, when you make a claim that's testable, before it's, uh, you know, the, the part of the peer review process should be multiple different groups of people trying to confirm or disconfirm uh, what you've claimed. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't happen very often. A lot of a lot of those papers, I think it would be it would be helpful if, you know, they went out of their way to find people who have a basic disagreement with the hypothesis of the paper like they already are going into it, not believing it. Although it would be frustrating for them to be pick, nitpicking at, you know, small things because they're trying to protect their own pet theory. I think it would be more vigorous, uh, you know, and you'd have to rise to a higher standard to defend your position. Our next question. Are you saying letting kindling build up on the forest floors causes fires? <laughs> no, it's so much more reasonable to chalk it up to a 0.2 degree warming trend, 0.18 of which is the corrected data. Well, I don't know about those numbers exactly, but the, the, what you're saying is essentially true. You know, it's easier 
for people that think climate change is going to destroy the, the habitable earth to blame these wildfires on climate change than it is to go through and look at what actually happened, like we did in this show during the past, you know, with the change in, in fire suppression and with the spotted owl and all that stuff. People don't want to dig deep. They don't want to look at that stuff. That's work. And that's the same problem we got in peer review. That's what we do here at the Heartland Institute. We dig deep. We pull up the facts and we put them out there. And I want to say that one of the most important tenets that hit me really deeply when I first joined the Heartland Institute, in 2018, I came to Chicago. I got assigned a temporary office to work in and get coordinated. On the wall of that office was a piece of paper. It was written by Joe Bast. It was printed out on his computer. Joe Bass, the former founder, or not the former founder, but the former uh, president of the organization and the founders had written this. And it says, rule number one, never, ever lie. And that's something that we embrace here at the Heartland Institute. That's what we do every time we publish something. We make sure it's factual and accurate. And you can't say the same about that for people out in the media or the politicians, or in some cases, even the scientists. And in, in response to Bo's question, I, you know, I said it earlier on, there's three things that make wildfires possible. And it's the right conditions, fuel load, and an ignition source. And all that killing that's built up is just, it adds to the fuel load. That's why wildfires have become, in, in part, that's why wildfires have become so large in recent years. You know, we, uh, there has been a, a modest uptick since the uh, 80s. And that's because we're not reducing fuel loads, either through logging or prescribed burns. And, and of course, sometimes because they've let fuel loads build up over a century by suppressing fires. <laughs> yeah, Smokey the Bear was very effective, by the way. Um, you set a, a, contro a, a controlled burn and it gets out of control real quick. Now, you know, Sterling, just a point, I'm surprised that the climate alarmists haven't come up with their own mascot, like Smokey the Bear, you know, something like a koala or, or maybe a panda uh, yeah. in an animated cartoon that comes up. Only no, what, you it, can prevent climate change. Yeah, you one, know? Of the, one, of the, one of the interesting things about bear, just, just as an aside. So look, we have something called the teddy bear, right? Everyone knows what a teddy bear is. Where did that come from? Well, it's named after Teddy Roosevelt who found a black bear cub that was left, uh, uh, you know, um, parentless uh, after a wildfire. He found a black bear in a burnt over forest and he they've got pictures of him holding this bear. And that's where the idea of the teddy bear came from. And that's why I believe the, the Forest Service adopted a bear because he was also the president who founded the Forest Service, adopted a bear as Smokey the Bear to fight forest fires. So um, we've had a lot of questions. We've only got time for one more, um, but um... <laughs> uh, maybe not that one. That's a good question, but maybe not this time. You know, that's one of the burning questions of our time. <laughs> Come on, Andy, that's find the... us one. All right. Uh, the science starts with the IPC working group and dies with the synthesis report. Yeah, that's pretty much true. <laughs> that's right. That's true. You know, they they go through the, the hard data. You know, there are folks at the beginning of the process that try to do their job. Really, they do. And then when we get down to the synthesis report, the politicians and the policy wonks and the climate activists get involved, and they take the, the uh, working group reports and then turn it into, well, this is what we want to say. That's what they do. That's the end result. Kind of like the COP28, you know, there we got, they got a conference saying we're going to save the earth and the politicians get involved and they make these giant pronouncements and nothing changes. Ah, one more, one more question. One more question. Are oceans rising or is the adjacent land sinking like in Florida? Well, it's a little of both. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of interesting points. There was a story this week in the media about New York City is is sinking under its own weight, and mainly Manhattan Island. Um, and so, you know, 
course, the alarmists will say, well, it's climate change, you know, the seas are rising. Well, it's not. But there's another interesting place, just not too far down the road, Baltimore. There's an impact crater from an ancient meteor, a large one, very large impact crater that's below the surface of the Earth. You can't see it because it's so old. It's been covered up. But the, the rock there, the bedrock is fractured. And it's been slowly compressing over millions of years. And so a lot of the sea level that rise that's coming into Baltimore has to do with the, the, the rock compressing under its, the fractured rock compressing under its own weight. There's that. Um, and then we've got in Miami, they've been pumping groundwater out. And so you've got subsidence going on yep, there. Subsidence. Uh, one of the other places, uh, Crescent City, California, actually going down. Well, that's on a fault zone. So, yeah, there's, it's a little of both. Bottom line is, is that the tide gauge data doesn't show any alarming rate of sea level rise. Yes, it's rising, but it's not really bad. It's one to two millimeters per decade, something like that, or per year. But the, the satellites show a much larger trend, more than double. And the satellites are an artifact of the way that they've been switching satellites around. There's three different satellites used in the, in the process, and they have different measuring systems and so forth. And Willis Eschenbach did a great article on What's Up With That about it, and we covered it in climaterealism.com, talking about the fact that the, the acceleration of sea level rise is actually an artifact of the way the data is measured by the satellites, and it's not there at all. Let's, you know, sea levels, as you say, it's a mix of both. Sea levels are rising. And in fact, they've risen about 400 feet over the last 12,000 years since the end of the ice age. Guess what? Sea levels rise between ice ages as, as ice retreats uh more of it is melted into water and when the next ice age comes uh sea levels will fall again dramatically but yeah over most of that time they have risen at a faster rate than they're rising now and um a lot of it as as anthony said is subsidence in addition you got to remember a lot of the places where we think of as sea level rising and as dangerous it's endangering us they actually didn't exist the way they are now a few hundred years ago. If you look at Boston, for instance, a lot of Boston shorefront that's all built up is built on fill. They actually made the harbor. So it's on land that was dumped there in water. And so they're surprised that it's yeah. not sinking. I highly recommend people go and look at old uh, drawings of what Washington, D.C. looked like when they first built the White House the first time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, take a look at how swampy it was then, as swampy as it is now. For different yeah. reasons. Well, they drained the swamp and we've still got them. Anyway, um, uh, so uh, that's it for this show. We've covered a lot of different topics. We've had a lot of great questions from people. I want to have a personal note that I want you to know about. Tonight on Fox News, the national channel, on the Laura Ingraham show, between 10 and 11 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 and 11 p.m. Eastern Time tonight on Fox News, I will be interviewed talking about these fires and so forth. Feel free to tune in. And uh, again, I appreciate everybody being here. Be sure to visit climaterealism.com. Be sure to visit climateataglance.com. Be sure to visit energyataglance.com, Linnea's new project. And we appreciate your support, and we appreciate your being here today. For Linnea and Sterling, I am Anthony Watts, Senior Fellow of Environment and Climate for the Heartland Institute, wishing you a good Friday and a great weekend.